Welcome, everyone, to this IMS Leadership Conversations podcast. My name is Charles Good. I'm your host and the president of the Institute for Management Studies. This podcast is designed to highlight relevant research and practical applications from esteemed leadership experts and practitioners. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Neil Staker, who has a master's in organizational behavior degree from BYU and a quarter of a century of experience in organizational development. Neil is known for his clear, approachable, and interactive speaking style. He has taught communication skills to thousands of people, including leaders from American Express, Cerner, UMB Financial, and Monsanto, to name but a few. Thank you for joining me today, Neil. Good to be here, Chuck. Before we get into a discussion around today's topic of focus on how to improve your communication, especially around those tough issues, I have to ask you about the bio that you have on your website that you haven't seen a movie since the Reagan administration. <laughs> and your idea of fun is yard work. So I'd love to, I mean, I would like to do more yard work. I don't find it particularly fun, but love to, to understand some insights or reasons as to um, why no movies and why yard work is so engaging for you. So growing up, my siblings referred to me as the stiff. That was not a positive uh, kind of thing, but I, I would wake up Saturday morning and want to like get all the yard work done before it got too hot. That's just kind of the way I'm wired, I guess. The thing that really, you know, my perfect day is getting a whole bunch accomplished. And uh, I love working in the yard because I get to see immediate results. And you, you kind of know this, if you're a practitioner of organizational development like I am, you're working on complex problems. You're trying to influence culture. You're trying to change behaviors that have been going on for years or decades. And change is slow and progress is, is sometimes hard to see. And I take that, you know, spending a, a week of being in meetings and trying to work through tough political problems and getting people to open up and be honest. And then I get to go out and just like do hard physical manual labor and when I'm done, I can look at it and say like, wow, that looks so much better. It's, it's like immediate uh, impact, which you don't often see immediate results with a lot of the things that we do in organizations. And so it's so different than what I do. It's so hands-on, so tangible. And uh, you, know, you get to see the immediate results of your labors there in a matter of hours, not a matter of days or weeks or months. So that's why I definitely relate to that, especially like you said, it's like you don't necessarily see those impacts right away with the type of work that we are in so it's always nice to see those results and that's a great perspective to have and maybe it'll even make me more motivated to do more of it at my house at some point so how about the movies though let's get to the movies what's up with this that you haven't seen a movie since the reagan administration for listeners that are maybe not of that age that was back in the 1980s you know and i've probably seen a few i did so so this is this is the truth so the last movie i saw in a theater was it's the one where everybody sings everybody the guy's the circus guy what's that called where it's the greatest the, show man. the greatest showman yeah i went and saw that so i have seen a movie since reagan was in the white house but i could count on one hand the movies i've seen since reagan was in the white house it's just not my favorite form of entertainment. I would rather go skiing or go mountain biking or go for a run or work in the yard or play a game. Or this goes back to my, my siblings calling me the stiff. I would love to have a policy discussion with some bright people about social security and budget implications. And <laughs> I just, I get off on stuff like that. So, uh, 
And that's why my, my brother wrote our bios on the website and he's like, you're the most boring guy I know, but you're so dang analytical and practical and you figure out how to get results. And it's like, that's why you've been doing this forever so successfully because you care more about doing the analysis and figuring out how to get results than you about having fun. And for me, that is fun. So, you know, that's just what I do. Great answer. Well, that's some good insight. Let's move into this conversation regarding communication, because we find mainly these tough issues have a disproportionate impact on our communication and on our relationships. And unfortunately, many leaders and many people in general tend to be at their worst when it matters most. Why do leaders usually, or people in general, fail in these tough conversations or situations? Yeah. Blame, blame our caveman ancestors. Turns out that our brains are wired to survive physical assault. And so when, when something that's threatening pops up, think back to if, if you and I were cavemen back in the day and a saber tooth tiger kind of appears around a corner, we don't need to do any complex reasoning about social status or, or implications or innuendo or tone of voice or anything like that. We just need to like basically shut our brain down. And our brain uses a huge amount of blood, uses more blood than pretty much anything else in your body. Your digestive system gives it a run for its money, but it's a huge consumer of blood and muscles. If you're going to run away or fight, you need a lot of that blood to be diverted from your brain to your muscles. So when you feel threatened, your brain literally shuts down and all the blood is diverted to the large muscle groups to get you ready for that sprint of your life or to pick up a stick and start swinging it as, as hard as you can. Great strategy for physical threat, whether it's a saber-toothed tiger or somebody that's going to mug you when you come out of a, a show late at night. It's not so helpful when you go into a meeting all excited about your new project and somebody makes some snarky comment that it's going to be like your last project that failed miserably. All of a sudden now I feel threatened, right? My reputation is at risk. My projects that I put so much time and effort into is at risk. And I've read books about how to be a good leader and how to be open and listen to people's concerns. But in that moment, when I feel threatened, the natural response is for the brain to shut down, the blood to get diverted to the muscles. It's also why our faces can go flush and red. It's that diversion of blood. And the only part of your brain that still has a light bulb on is the brain stem. And that part of the brain doesn't think so well when it comes to communication and interaction. So that is one of the major reasons why we do so poorly when it matters the most. Well, that's a great explanation, and I would agree with that. And there's also this bias that the majority of us have to always assume the worst, right? Mm -hmm. And you have a theory behind this, and I think it's backed by sound science that, you know, because of bad experiences weigh more in our psyche than the positive ones. Can you elaborate on that for us? Yeah, it is interesting. So one of the things we like to do, we do this in the class in a, in a kind of a fun way, but we'll we'll give people a scenario. We'll say like, Hey, you know, your significant other says, Hey, do you have a minute? I need to talk to you. Or a coworker will say, when you're done here, come see me in my office. And people universally jump to a negative conclusion. They assume the worst, something terrible is going to happen. And then we kind of point that out, like, uh, Hey, you assume the worst, you know, you, you assume something bad was going to happen. And they said, well, of course I did, because if it wasn't bad, then why would they have said it that way? You know, if it was a positive thing, they would have prefaced it that way, or they would have said it differently. If you actually look at the way people communicate, 
It's not true. Most of the time, we do things like that all the time. Like, hey, when you're done, come see me or come talk to me. The reality is if you observe um, people in conversation, most of the time when they say things like that, it's benign. So if I, if you and I work together and say, hey, when you're done talking to him, can you come see me? It's because I can't find how to log into this new software we're supposed to be using to track our hours or something. Or it's because I was going to get your opinion on how to solve a tough problem or it's something like that. If it's our spouse, they're going to ask if we can pick up the dry cleaning on the way home or something like that. Nine times out of 10, it's just benign routine stuff. It might even be positive stuff, but all of that stuff disappears. There's no reason for us to remember that. But when it's negative, our brain says, oh, wow, I got burned on this. I need to store that in my memory. If you look at a lot of the research on memory, the things that we remember best are things we get wrong that cause us pain. It's the time when you touch the hot pan or it's the time you spelled a word wrong in front of everybody else. And it was embarrassing. Those things you will remember for the rest of your life because our brain says, hey, not knowing this caused you a lot of pain. And so it logs that in our brains and our memories in a way that's permanent and very powerful. So one negative experience to 20 positive experiences is going to have a huge weight difference in our, in our, our memory. Well, and the other thing that you mentioned too is that when we assume others have bad reasons for what they do, then that causes us to behave badly as a result, bringing out the worst in them as a result. So a more reasonable approach, right, would be, what if we jump to a positive conclusion? How does that differ? And what approach or how does that approach look like? Yeah. So I, I uh, love my dad. Uh, he was a cop and he worked with a lot of uh, the senior side of people, but he came up with this because he always worked with people where you want to assume the worst. I would see him do this as a boy. We'd go into like a grocery store to return something. We were overcharged and he would walk up and he'd like put it on the counter and it'd be very aggressive and domineering. He's like, you overcharged me for this. And you know, I'm not leaving until I get a refund. And it was very forceful. And I'm sure it was great when you're arresting drug dealers and whatnot, but you could see people start to bristle as, as he would assume the worst about them and come in and kind of be very adversarial. You could see them like kind of the hair on the back of their neck would kind of go up and you could see them stiffen and you could see their face harden and they would mirror his confrontational style. And as a boy, I picked up on that and I, I started seeing the difference. And so as I got older, I might not be brilliant in a lot of ways, but I'm, I'm hopefully I can learn a few things and learn from mistakes, mine and others. I tried a different tact. I would come into the store and see somebody that looked stressed and frustrated. And they'd turn around like, what can I do for you? And I would get this big group, goofy grin on my face. And I would say something like, I'm hoping you're the guy that can make my day. And they would rise to the occasion. So here's a guy that's like assuming the best about me, that thinks I can make his day versus here's a guy that's in my face yelling at me. We tend to kind of get back what we project. And so if we assume other people are lazy and adversarial and difficult, we come across as demeaning and condescending and confrontational, and, and they respond to that. If we assume good things about them, that they're kind, that they're helpful, that they're a decent person, People like to have others assume the best about them and they respond in kind. Okay. And that's great. And I love that approach. And I think that should be all of our default setting is have that positive intent. But what happens if you find out that you 
are going to assume a positive conclusion, but really they're adversarial. They really want to undermine what you're saying. How do you, what, what stance, what position should you take at that point so you can then effectively deal with this issue? Yeah. That is the number one question we get by. Actually, the, the two most popular questions I get in the workshop is the one you just mentioned, but yeah, what if they really are? You, what if you assume the worst and they or assume the best about somebody, but they're the worst? The other question I get is, what does your wife think when you try using this stuff on her? <laughs> but we'll stick with your question. It's more relevant. I have a couple aspects of that. First, you lose nothing by giving them the benefit of the doubt. You can still be firm. You can still be direct. So if somebody is attacking my idea in the meet in a meeting, I'm pitching my idea and somebody's bringing up past mistakes and they're trying to undermine me, I can assume they're a jerk and this is a political play and they're trying to make me look bad, in which case I will attack them back and they'll get defensive. Or I can assume that they're stressed, they're frustrated. Maybe they don't understand where I'm coming from. Maybe they see what I'm doing as a threat to them. And I need to try to understand where they're coming from. So I'm going to soften my voice. I'm going to get a little goofy grin. I'm going to say, Charles, help me out here. You seem to have some concerns about this. Why is it you're so worried about how we're doing this? And I'm going to listen and I'm going to understand. I don't lose any options by taking a moment to be respectful. If you're still being difficult and argumentative, I can then say, you know what, Charles, I hate to say it, but I get the feeling like you just don't like this idea because it's not centered in your area. I can still say whatever I said before. I can still be as firm as I was before. I could still say, I'm sorry you don't like it, but it's the direction we're going to go. So I can be just as firm, but everybody in the room, including you, will see how respectful I was in the process. And that never hurts. You know, you, you just, I think a good example right now is the president of Ukraine. Zelensky versus Putin. You don't have to respond like by being a to a tyrant by being a tyrant. You can be decent and honorable and most people will see the contrast and they'll side with you for being the one that's respectful. So. No, I like that. And that's an, an effective approach. Now, if this person is being confrontational and just keeps trying to bait you, keeps pushing the issue, how do you shut it down? so that it just doesn't escalate because as it escalates, then it could turn into outright conflict. So let's look at some of those escalating behaviors right now so that our listeners could say, okay, if these are the most common ones, this would give us some insight into, yes, this could get out of control. So mm -hmm. we, now we know the signs and how can we diffuse it as quickly as possible? Yeah. So it's a good question. One of the big skills that people that are really good at this stuff that are naturally gifted when it comes to communication is they do notice escalation. All of us notice when it gets to a certain point, but at a certain point when most of us notice, it's too late to really do anything about it. So the sign that I like to look for, my, my subtlest form of escalation is a lack of questions. If you've got people that are genuinely trying to understand and find solutions, they're gonna ask questions to help them understand. When people shift from asking questions to only explaining why their viewpoint or their um, side is right, then you know that you're starting to, to escalate. And then the language becomes more forceful. You start hearing um, some obvious ones like, well, yeah, but, and they're going to interrupt each other. You're also going to hear some things like, well, everybody knows that. And you always say that. So you're going to start hearing some absolutes and it might even escalate to labeling. That's an optimistic assessment or you're not foolish enough to believe those numbers, are you? 
now I'm starting to kind of impugn your, your character, your mental ability. And so it, it tends to escalate through a series of a lack of questions to forceful, convincing language and all the way up to labels where we're labeling people's ideas and uh, ultimately labeling them themselves. So the sooner you notice, the better. Once you do notice, the best thing is just to go public with it. One of the best examples I ever saw, we, we kind of have this phrase that we like to use that, that if you name the game, you don't have to play it. So we actually saw somebody and somebody that was known as being really aggressive and kind of a bully in the organization. They were talking in a hallway and he started leaning in and he was a big guy and he was leaning in on this little guy. And the little guy said, you know, as we're talking, you're leaning in towards me and you're a lot taller than I am. It almost looks like you're trying to intimidate me by your size. What does the big guy do? Oh, I'm sorry. And he steps back. If you name the game, you don't have to play it. So if it starts escalating and you kind of do a timeout, you say, guys, guys, we, we need to stop here. It's like, I'm seeing people that, that a minute ago we were asking honest questions and now we're using words like it's obvious that and everybody knows. And I'm as guilty of this as anybody else, but this path doesn't take us anywhere. Let's take a step back. We can agree to find something that works for all of us, or at least to try to understand where we're coming from. It does wonders when you just go public with that statement to, to shift the whole focus of the conversation and to, to help everybody else's emotions. Because we talked earlier about that fight or flight response with the tiger. It takes that away. And all of a sudden, everybody kind of takes a deep breath. The blood comes back into the brain. They start thinking a little bit more clearly and we're back on track. I love that because it starts out with those lack of questions. It turns into more controlling language. They talk more in absolutes. They might even label, use sarcasm, use threats. So if you don't identify it early enough to curtail it, to diffuse it, and it gets to that point, is there any in-the-moment strategy? Because I always like to differentiate between preventative strategies versus in-the-moment strategies. So mm -hmm. people have both types of tools that they can use. So in the moment, it's gotten to that level where it's now sarcasm. They're, what they're saying is dripping with sarcasm. They're threatening. What would be a, a good script? Because I find that leaders, a lot of times in these tough situations, need effective scripts. Because yeah. in the moment, they bumble their words. They don't know how to say it. They get themselves into deeper trouble. But if they can plan on using a certain script or at least parts of a script, that seems to help. Yeah, you're right. So uh, in fact, sometimes we jokingly say that at the end of a workshop, we've created more guilt than change because you're aware now of all the things you're doing wrong, but that doesn't mean you can immediately get them right. There is a yeah. learning. You'll get some right immediately. Others are going to keep getting wrong. And you'll have to keep working on them until you get to where you're preventing them. The simplest thing to do is just a genuine, immediate apology. And it doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be articulate. It just needs to come from the heart. And that's something I've used myself. I use it in work settings. I use it in home settings where you find yourself that you kind of blew it. And sometimes I do it in the moment. Sometimes it's even, for me, it's often five minutes later. I think about five minutes is about how long it takes for me to get the blood back up to the brain. And I start thinking about all the things that I could have said and should have said and didn't say and how I should have done it differently. Almost universally, I can still go back and apologize. So I can still walk down the hall, tap on somebody's door and say, you know what? I got carried away. I was pushing so hard for my thing. I was, I was totally dismissing your point of view. I wasn't really listening. 
I wasn't trying to understand. I wasn't trying to accommodate. I just wanted to win. And I'm sorry about that. The big thing when you apologize is don't try to rationalize why you behave badly. It makes it sound like you're not really sorry. If you're rationalizing a reason why, just, just tell them what you did wrong and, and that it was wrong and that you're sorry. And a good apology, and it works great in the moment, it works great five minutes later, it works great five weeks later. It's never too late to apologize. That's great advice. I, mean, I found it to be very effective in my personal experience is keep them short, make sure that you convey the right point, and then shut up. Don't keep, like you said, rationalizing it where it, it minimizes it mm -hmm. at some point. So how are we able to identify some of our communication weaknesses? Uh, I'm sure having an accountability partner is great, but as leaders move up in any organization, they find it more difficult to get that honest feedback to improve because people are reluctant or unwilling to say, here's what you're doing wrong. Now they can hire a professional coach. They can go through 360s, but are there some simple ways in which they can effectively identify with their communication blind spots? Yeah. And you're, you're dead on with that. As you move up in an organization, people are very, very reluctant to give you feedback with the exception of your, you know, I, I jokingly refer to my, how my siblings call me the stiff, your siblings, spouse, close friends will always give you honest feedback, no matter how successful you are. That's one of the advantages of, of having them in your life, but they might not see how things are. So, but, but if you have some close people like that, that's a good positive. One of the things that I find incredibly helpful is we call it priming the pump. If you've ever used a really old suction pump where you pump the handle to get water to come up, to create the suction, you have to pour a little bit of water in to, to get the seals to expand and to close off the little air passage there so that as you're working the pump, you can get the suction to pull up more water. So. But it's the idea that a little water in, you can get a whole lot more water out. So if I was a senior leader and you should assume that people are very reluctant to give you honest feedback, if you are a, a leader or even a manager, I would say something like this. I really, really want to improve. And I know that it's really, really hard to be, give candid feedback to, to your manager or to a leader in an organization. And yet you guys have insights that nobody else has. I need, so they get that preface. They know it's sincere. And they say, I know that I'm not good when it comes to delegating. I, I sense that about myself, but I, I don't know all the things I do wrong, but I know there's some things I do wrong. And then be as specific as possible. I might say like, I know when I give assignments, I tend to check up on them too often because I'm curious how it's going. And I think it comes across as micromanaging and it probably is some micromanaging on my part. That's something I need to change. Help me see what else I need to change. And, and can you give me some examples of when I've done that and it's been bad? And can you give me some examples of when I've done it and it's been good? But if they get the sense that you really, really want to change and the way they know that is if they can see that you've already identified some things and you're working on them, in a sense, if I'm criticizing myself, it makes it safe for them to do the same. Now, that's still kind of scarier than 360 feedback, anonymous feedback, but my experience, it's hard to get qualitative feedback anonymously. You tend to get high ratings. You tend to get short little um, answers that, that aren't very descriptive and lack context. The best feedback comes when you can really talk to people and, and get that input one-on-one. -on -one. So that's, that's one of the things that I, I would do. If you have people who are really scared about it, we did this with a group in Singapore. 
We had the leaders send up just like I said, but then people texted in their answers and they texted them to a third party person, a facilitator. And then the facilitator would say, this person says, but that, but the leader didn't know who in the room was sharing the feedback because it was all being routed through the, the facilitator. So in a sense, that's like an anonymous 360, but the big plus was it let the leader ask real time clarifying questions like, wow. So I've done that in a meeting. Can anybody here tell me like what it sounded like? And then they can text that in. Um, so that, that was kind of an innovative approach, but that worked really well for that particular team. I love making it specific, making it in a specific area so that they feel more comfortable in sharing. Where does trust play in this all? I assume that if they, if you want to get feedback, you got to trust their motives, right? You only going to go to individuals in which you think um, they're going to give you honest feedback, but that level of trust has to be there to begin with because you don't want to give them even more weapons, right? To use against you. Yeah. Well, I, I think the trust goes both ways. And I think sometimes we miss that. We think to get feedback, you need trust, but to give feedback, you need a lot of trust. In fact, we surveyed people and we said, which makes you more nervous, getting feedback or giving it? For the vast majority of people, giving feedback is much more nerve wracking than receiving it. We just, you know, and, and so that's why there's a, a lack of it. Most people are starved by feedback. One of the things I like to do is I ask people when I had a workshop, I'm like, think about a time when you got really helpful feedback. How many of you, you know, hands go up and then I'm like, how long ago was it? And almost universally, it's like seven years ago or three years ago. I'm like, have you gotten any good feedback since then? And people are like, yeah, not so much. People are starving for good feedback and trust is a huge part of that. And I think trust all comes back to intent. Why do you want the feedback? What are you going to do with it? You know, why are you giving it to me? We've got to get the intent right. We, we like to say intent before content. So before you get into the content of the feedback, it's really good to clarify the intent. Why am I giving it to you? Why do I want it from you? What am I going to do with it? It's always good to clarify that up front. And that's great. And, and you're right. I think everyone is so starved for feedback. Some people don't want the feedback and those that do want it, they are getting it in a timely enough fashion to make those corrective measures, right? To improve their yeah. leadership style, to improve that area of their life, which, which is so critical for the process of improvement to get timely and accurate feedback. Yeah. So as we reach the end of this episode, I always like to end it with a call to action. Niels, there one thing we can ask our listeners to do to start tomorrow in regards to whether it be identifying their communication weaknesses, improving their feedback, or helping with conflict? So the big thing I would challenge people to do is to share their good intentions. That It's the one I ended with, intent before content. We have no idea how often people are nervous about what we bring up. We like to do a little experiment where we have people send a text message to a good friend where it just says like, hey, what does your day look like? I need to talk to you. And it's to a good friend. And then the person usually replies back and says, I'm free after three or something like that. And then we say, follow that with a second text that says, were you nervous? Universally, people are like, oh yes, I was, I was paranoid. I thought you were mad at me or I thought there was a big problem. We don't realize how worried people are about communication and it all comes down to intent. If we're clear about what our intent is, our motive, why we want to talk up front, it helps people be at ease. I think if there's one simple thing we could do 
that would have a big impact. It would just be to clarify your intent upfront anytime you, you get into a conversation with somebody. I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you, Neil, for joining us today. Let our listeners know how they can reach out and connect. I think the best way to connect with me is actually through the IMS content. I've got some great videos on there. Um, I've got a workshop coming up. I'm also on LinkedIn. If they want to reach out to me there, they can contact me that way. And uh, of course, we've got our website, collaborance.com, and lots of good ways, I guess, to get in touch with me. Great. Thank you for joining me today, Neil. This concludes this episode of the IMS Leadership Conversations podcast. You can send us your feedback at info at ims-online.com. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, it can be found on both Apple and Spotify. It can also be accessed on the Institute for Management Studies website at ims-online.com. Until next time, remember, it's not what you know that makes a difference, but what you do consistently. Mm -hmm.